Long before your startup hits the market, you must begin laying the foundations for its eventual success. This is by no means the most attractive part of founding your own company, but if you want to survive past the development process, then you'll need to earmark a good chunk, if not the majority of your time, researching and securing distribution channels that'll best reach your target market. On this episode, I'm talking with Damien Stone, who's the founder of Water3. Damien is a great blend of branding, sales, and hustle. And during this chat, we cover how he built Water3 through direct sales before leveraging that experience into distribution partners. Welcome to Fractal Marketing. My name's Jared Doyle, and this is the podcast for entrepreneurs who want to grow their company through smarter marketing. The goal of the podcast is to provide you with marketing tips, strategies, and insights to enable you to grow your business. You'll hear from fellow entrepreneurs who share their learnings and insights on how they're growing their businesses. You'll also hear from marketing professionals who'll give you easy to execute marketing advice. And of course, you'll also be hearing from me. You might be an accountant, a graphic designer, a recruiter, a startup founder, but if you're the best kept secret in your industry, then your business is just not going to grow. Let's get into the episode. So Damien, welcome to the episode. Hey, Joe. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, on board the podcast. Of course, of course. So I'm looking forward to this conversation because I've got, we're going to be talking to start with about Water3 and your business. And mm-hmm. I love that we're going to be talking about this because my father had a business. It was kind of almost like a precursor, you know, it was an evolution before Water3. So I feel a, some kind of affinity to water vending machines in this whole space and, and what they look like, but I'm, I'm jumping ahead. So for people who are listening to this, and they don't know what Water3 is. Can you give us the quick elevator pitch, I guess, to what Water3 is and what it does? Yeah, sure. Um, it's many things to many people, but the basic synopsis is it's a, a vending machine-style water refill station that doesn't require any plumbing, um, so it holds its own water, and that's pretty unique. Most There's thousands of one different water refill stations around the world, but they're all plumbed in, so they take town water, filter it, and then you know they've got drainage whereas our machine doesn't have any of that, and that's uh, very, very unique in the world. Yeah, so that's exactly the evolution I was thinking about. So my father being my entrepreneurial lead, I guess, in the things that I took, started importing water machines quite a while ago. He doesn't do it anymore, but he had the plumbed-in water machine. So the town water would come in, he'd filter it, clean it, UV, shoot it, reverse osmosis, and all the other things in there and come through. So Okay, so it begs the question, if you're not taking town water into the machines, where is the water coming from? So generally speaking, we work with beverage companies around the world that have water brands, um, and a lot of them have bulk water brands. So they use, there's so many names for these things, demijohns, Mm -hmm. drums, carboys, jugs, the water cooler, basically the classic 19-litre water cooler. Mm -hmm. So our machine holds about 12 of those and set up in a couple of banks, and the water comes from that. Right, and how does the water get in? Pretty straightforward. <laughs> it's, it's really easy. It's, it's, it's a lot more complicated, but yeah, that's that's the, the real basic part of it. They, they bring their own water, and so the machine's got a, a ton of sensors inside that tell you how much water you're selling, if there's any issues around temperature or anything like that. So you can basically log in, and probably 90% of the issues that you'd have with a traditional vending machine, we can fix remotely. So there's a whole bunch of operational efficiencies that we're able to bring to that. But the important thing is that, that no plumbing part. That is a key point for a lot of beverage companies around the world because they can put a branded product in it. Mm-hmm. It's not just filtered tap water. It is an actually branded product. Now, for some markets, that's mineral water. 
In Australia, we use uh, spring water. In other countries, they use their own branded uh, remineralized water. So it just really depends right. on the brand and the company that's doing it. Right. So the machines that I see are all brand. Well, the ones I've seen are branded Water Three. Does that mean there's yeah. other machines that are that are using the same technology but aren't actually branded Water Three, and they're branded with other companies' names on them around the world? Yeah. So if you're in Hong Kong, you'll be able to find uh, Bon Aqua refill machines that are our mm-hmm. technology underneath them. So that's a Coca-Cola brand. Swire Coca-Cola operates those in, in Hong Kong. There's a number of other markets that are using different brands, but I can't really go into too much detail about those because they haven't moved into market yet. Yep, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and the other big thing is, you know, water sort of, I guess, the water machines that I knew beforehand, you know, filled up big 10-litre, 15-litre bottles. Yeah. So you're vending for personal consumption on the spot, right? That's the big thing for you is it's not a plastic bottle. This is where you're bringing in your personalised cups that you consume from so they're the ones i see people carrying around that are that are branded up yeah so you can either use your own water bottle or you can buy a stainless steel one from the machine itself or you can buy them online Um, and there's a number of different retailers that actually stock a lot of the colored ones as well we're not trying to target the people that want to get 10 or 20 liters to take home and drink we're um, targeting the convenience market so this is people that have been used to paying three or four bucks for a bottle of water Mm -hmm. it's for people that are out and about so if you're at home, you're not out in the market. If you're at work, probably not out in the market. But if you're in the food court at lunchtime or you're going to the gym or you're at the movies or you're on, you know, catching a train or a bus or an aeroplane or you're staying at a backpackers or a hotel and golf course, uh, you're at the sports centre. There's so many, so many different places that we are where it's not that easy to get chilled water and certainly not in an environmental fashion. There's, you know, water fountains around, but they're pretty gross. And the water, especially in southeast or hotter climates, like southeast Queensland, you know, the water becoming out of the ground now at 30 degrees. And that's, you know, it's getting close to fairly bacteria level. Yeah. So for us, we're, we're chilled. The, the water in the machines in Australia only costs a dollar to refill your bottle with um, chilled spring water. So you're saving money and you're not using plastic important. Yeah, I can see that it plays really nicely into that market. I, I think back to you know, sort of when I was at university and people didn't walk around. So, you know, this is, oh, I'm dating myself. But, you know, people didn't walk around carrying bottles of water. It it sort of had just started. It became a sort of a thing where people came in. And now, you know, every kid in every classroom has a water bottle. You know, everyone walks around with water bottles. I went to the cricket last night, you know, take the kids. All the kids have got water bottles. This is just what we do now. So people walk around with the bottles. I think if you fast forward or you rewound 15 years, the model wouldn't have worked. The market timing wouldn't have worked because everyone wasn't walking around with a bottle that was reusable. So how much do you think that market timing has played into you know, the growth of your business and the success? I, I think uh, every few months for the last eight years, someone has said, oh, your timing couldn't be better. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, I, I mean, we saw the problem eight years ago. We were offered a, a water company out of the South Island that had a bottling operation. It didn't have any brand associated with it. And my business partner, Lester, he was offered to, someone said, oh, can you help us sell it? And he came to me and said, oh, you've got anyone that would buy it. And no one was really too interested in it because there was no brand associated with it. But I went off to Vietnam on a, uh, on a holiday and thought, oh, you know, look at this. They love New Zealand products over here. Whoever was working for Fonterra at the time selling Anchor Butter out there did a pretty good job because there's in every single hotel little things of Anchor Butter. And so I thought, oh, geez, you know, they, they love New Zealand water here. Maybe I'll bottle that water in NZ and, and um, send it up to Vietnam. But then, you know, we started to see, I saw the plastic problem and came back and had a chat with Lester about it. 
and I've seen plenty of like old school reform machines and you know they're very functional or barely functional there's no real nicety to them there's no brand experience or anything like that so well, there's a big gap from brand experience point of view actually make something that people want to interact with and it looks cool it's got a touch screen and it's got lights and it does and there's a you know, video screen like playing videos and make it really interesting to interact with and certainly have some packaging if you like and that's my background is in packaging you know, i used to do a lot of packaging work for for coke and schweppes and lion and capri's and heinz and God, I can't remember now. A lot of big FMCG companies. So I understood the power of you know, the packaging, and I just felt like this is a package, just repackage the refill experience in, in a better way. And that was uh, that was about just over eight years ago now. It would have been around eight years ago, yeah. Right. And so, so when you refer to the packaging, we're talking about the bottles here. And so this is the Keep Forever. So this is like the water equivalent of Keep Cup. So Keep Cup transformed mm-hmm. disposable cups, and they got the brand. Everyone talks about it. So you've been able to position your bottles in such a way that that's the thing that people are tying to their backpack, carrying around, putting on their desk, taking to meetings. And so people see Water 3 and then I guess that leads to the subsequent question like, oh, what's that or what's that brand or where do you buy that? And then that allows, yeah. I'm guessing, people who understand your service to become evangelists and actually talk about it. Is that, is that the logic with having really slick branding and, and packaging to get that kind of referral marketing word of mouth happening? Yeah, the word of mouth referral marketing is really important. We don't have the budgets of a, of a Coke or a, a big beverage company to go and drop a couple of million bucks on billboards on the M1. We have to rely very much on the packaging doing the, the work for us, which is the kiosk, and then obviously the bottles and the brand experience and, and the like. And we do get quite a bit of organic sharing through social media. I'm not on Facebook, so I don't see what happens on Facebook. Apparently, there's quite a bit going on there. The team tells me and, and bits and pieces on Instagram. So the early adopter side of stuff was, was pretty key for us. We they're an awfully they're an awfully hard segment to target, but I think if you have a, a good enough offering, they'll discover you and share themselves. I and mean, I remember someone saying to me years ago, "Advertising is what you do when no one will talk about it." Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly right. Like when your product's not interesting enough to to talk about, you have to spend dollars to buy eyeballs and get. You know, yeah. earbuds listening to you. So, yes, yeah. I think it's very true. I think it's very true. Yeah, well, I mean, I used to run a little marketing agency called Brand 88, which is purely about word-of-mouth marketing and referral marketing. So setting up referral systems for B2B businesses, setting up, you know, helping make part of your business remarkable so people talk about it as, as far as their experience would go. And that was, that was a really fun business, a lot of fun clients, things from aged care to candles to, to all sorts. Oh, now and I'm tempted to know. Like, how do you get people to talk about aged care or candles? What makes what's the what's the Seth Godin purple cow scenario? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the aged care one was interesting. It was a company called Tall Trees. They're now being bought out by one of the big big companies. And they had a uh, place down in Tanamera on the side of the M1. And one of the exercises we did, which you know was really nice, but also created a story in the car park what we did is we planted native australian trees in the car park with a, a little thing on it for the there's the resident that planted it so they are the tall trees of our community putting in some tall trees and so when people are in the car park where say oh you know these are the, the original residents that lived here there are tall trees and they planted these trees and just something like that when someone comes in to see a residence that are looking to put mum or dad into and they have that story to be able to tell just kind of like, oh, that's really nice. And if you have a number of those different points people talk about, and as Seth said, you, you know, you've got to be remarkable. And being remarkable doesn't mean having a bright, shiny, glitter-covered shirt. That means having something that's shareable that people want to talk about. So it's worth 
remarking about. And that kind of little stories like that show that there's care and aligns with the brand. And there's also just a, yeah, just an interesting, interesting little aside that will actually stick in someone's mind uh, if you use Yeah. I love it. I love it. I think that's that's fantastic. I think um, I'm sort of a bit jealous. You know, when you, when you see good ideas and you hear good ideas, you think, oh, why couldn't I come up with something like that? I want that. <laughs> so I'll just misquote it later on to somebody else and I'll, I'll claim it. You know, I claim it as my own, but I'll go, oh, I had a great story. So I've got yeah. that one now. I'll file it away for later. So I know with these, like, vending machine game, roughly speaking, one of the hard bits about getting going is negotiating spots and tenancies and rent and revenue shares and those elements. So yeah. when you launch and you've got to get out there, how did you break down the first stores? Like, what did you do? Was it just hard slog door knocking, trying to find an independent store or a service station? Or, or what was the story there? Oh, it was a it was a multifaceted approach for sure. There's a there's a lot of work that went in both at every part of the you know the I guess the re, uh, the chain of different premises we wanted to go into. So we created a channel strategy. So each channel had slight different reasons why they would want a water free machine in. For some, it was purely to demonstrate that they're socially responsible. For others, it was you know retail was 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 a funny one actually. There was a, a combination of declining yields in retail. Coke machines being pulled out. Coke's vending strategy was, you know, coming off from what it was, and also ATMs getting pulled out as well. So there was a change of legislation around ATMs and what they could charge. I think so. You know, ATMs are making pretty good money. You know, a lot of them pulled out now because as the as we progressed towards more of a cashless society. And what so what we did is we, we identified the, the, the I guess the the hot points for each channel. And then it was just really honestly a case of the thing that most people hate that I really enjoy, just, just picking up the phone and, and be able to get out. <laughs> and, you know, people said to me, oh, that's going to be the, the, the biggest challenge for you guys is finding placements. But we found mm-hmm. plenty. And we've got, I don't know now, maybe it's probably at 300 and something easily now. In in Australia or? In South East Queensland, or? yeah. yeah. South East Queensland. Between, between Bella and Noosa and as far inland as Ipswich. There's about, I believe, about 300, 300 something machines now. And they range from your top end malls, like your, you know, your Pacific Fair and Broad Beach, and AMP Capital were awesome. They were a really good supporter of us right from the very start. And we actually had our launch event there a few years ago. So they've been really big supporters of us right from the very beginning, which has been awesome. And then as soon as you sort of get one, the other ones go, well, I'm not the first. So yeah, all right, we'll stick one in, and then eventually you get three, and then four. You know, you use that site to say, oh, we're in a pack fair and we're at this place and we're at this place. Maybe you guys should, oh, well, if they're doing it, we'll do it too. So you just use that and just find an early adopter, get them to do it and use them as a reference site for the other ones. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But I, I was going to say before, and you're going to hate me saying this, but you know, you said about Coke machines and dwindling and ATMs coming out and not being able to charge fees. And it's like, it feels like one of those market timing things again, where you just go, okay, so everyone's now got a water bottle. We're thinking about the environment. ATMs are disappearing. Retail yields going down. Coke machines aren't as popular as they used to be. And you sort of go, yeah, look, you know, it doesn't take away from the business. It doesn't take away from how hard things are. But, you know, like we said before, market timing, it does make these things either a little bit easier, but also you know increases their chance of success. So I can see can see how yeah. that's happened. And there's, I mean, there's lots of things that have worked against us in, in the same respect as well. You know, there's certainly been a lot of challenges due to vagaries of the market or things happening or whatever that have made it difficult for us to get into spots where we need to go. So there has been stuff that has worked against us as well. So yeah, there's a lot of you know very fortunate timing things that we have the I guess the the right sort of preparation and hard work ready and tap to advantage of those before somebody else did. So there's a bit of that. 
but yeah, certainly it's not all unicorns and you know glow sticks. It was um, it was definitely a lot of challenges. <laughs> I can imagine. Look, and it is it is hard growing, like 300 spots. That's a lot of negotiations. That's a lot of physical presences. That's a lot of, yeah. you know, yeah. chairs, rent to pay, service calls. I mean, I know you said you've got like the centralized technology, but that's still a lot of customer service. Can you talk a little bit now about how you sort of went from, say, that position to where you've expanded the business over the last sort of 18 months? Because I know you've pivoted and changed the way you've sort of scaled the operations and what you're doing. Yeah, look, the original thought was we're going to be the Uber of water and we're going to disrupt Coca-Cola and take them all on and grow like crazy and, you know, do all this stuff and blah, 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 let's go. And that was very much the intent from the beginning. But as we progressed the business, what we realized is that to grow, to be an operator ourselves in each of the countries where we're, you know, filling up with water and doing that sort of stuff, you know, you know, this enormous company with an enormous amount of capital and this, you've got this vertical integration is probably far too big in terms of where we were and so we thought long and hard about talking to the beverage companies and then went down a path of what are going to be the hot points for these guys in each market that's going to make them go yeah okay we want we want your tech and you know there's a there's a huge amount of really good software that we built around just being operators ourselves that we've had to go through and make a lot of changes on now to to get the operators involved in that that pivot allows, will allow us to be a lot leaner uh, as, a, as, a, as a business. We've got manufacturing and most of our software is done in Thailand. We don't manufacture, we use a contract manufacturer. So we'd be able to knock our staffing costs you know, down quite substantially just being the manufacturer of the hardware and software. And it's a much easier business for us to manage, to be honest. Yeah, so just like iPhone, like Apple don't actually make their iPhones, they outsource that and Foxconn or whoever it is does that production. Yeah. You've done the same thing with your machines, that's done. But you own the operating system, is that right? So you own how the guts of the machine and how it works and then you license that out. Yeah, correct. So the, soft, the, the there's a few different softwares in there. There's some off-the-shelf stuff that we just tie in because there's no point in mm-hmm. reinventing the wheel. Yeah. and But the basic kiosk management module is ours. We wrote that from scratch. There's PLC software that we wrote as well. And, yeah, so our model is very much we, we sell a machine to um, you know, Coke or something like that. They put their own branding on it, and then they just pass a, um, they pass a license for you for the software. Right. So all your overseas expansion has been based around this idea now of it being an operating system and tech and, and the central system, and then the manufacturing is done through a contractor, but the actual sourcing of locations and putting of the water and all that is done by a coca-cola or equivalent type company in different countries around the world yep that's right and so they they own and operate it they put their own brand and sell their own water we're not interested in, in doing that in, in you know 101 different countries around the world so by working with you know the cokes and the pepsis and Danones and unilevers and that of this world they've got market pressures so coca-cola's got their big thing called the world without waste pepsi's got one i think it's called beyond the bottle there's a few big strategies and, you know, I can say hand of my heart, they're not just paying this waste thing lip service. They're actually really sinking some serious money into what the world should look like. And there's no real silver bullet to the plastic bottle problem. We're a part of a, you know, a framework of um, probably four or five things that companies will implement. So whether it's, you know, using recycled PET, it's using water three, you know, we're looking for putting flavors into the machine at some stage in the future as well. So using us in certain places, it enables them to still sell a branded product, but put water refill place into places where, you know, it's probably been a bit difficult for them to actually get stuff into before. But then there's also events and all sorts of other stuff. So, yeah, we're really just turning the screws on 
that big pivot for the last 18 months. So, yeah, there's Roller happening in Hong Kong at the moment with um, Swire and the Bionicle brand. There's a few other countries that are in trials at the moment as well. I can't tell you about those because it's still in trial. So what does that look like from a company point of view? Like you, you spoke about 300 Southeast Queensland hard-fought and owned and, and sourced locations. You've gone in, installed Water 3 and, and done the full vertical integration and, and own that whole story. So that's significant yeah. scale Southeast Queensland. What is the trajectory? What's it looking like now as a global company in terms of units, now that you've moved away from doing everything and you focus on the software side, what, how is that scale going to happen on a global side? Like, how much bigger is that going to be? Because I'm assuming it's going to be significantly bigger. Yeah, we'll certainly be making a lot more machines because a lot of these companies will, you know, take 40, 50 a month, sometimes 100 a month. If you look at the Japanese market, for example, Suntory's got 650,000 vending machines and they replace 5% of their fleet every year, which is, you know, 30,000 vending machines every year they go through. Coke in Japan's got a million vending machines, and I assume they do the 5% rotation as well, refurbs. So that's probably the biggest market. America's got millions and millions of vending machines. So for a long time, we're taking an older piece of kit and just swapping them out. We don't expect that they're going to you know, replace their entire fleet of vending machines with three machines. That would be, well, yeah, I don't even know how big a problem that would be. <laughs> big bonkers. We're talking here in terms of multiples. We're talking getting to a stage where you know every week or every few days you could be there could be as many machines based around your technology being installed uh, in a week that you've current that took you the years to get in place by doing the whole scale and then the upside to you is instead of having to run a huge customer service team and run around and fix bugs and then discover someone pulled a power plug out of the back or whatever happened to happen you know went wrong because i know it's just it's not working i've got to you know it ate my money you know I'm getting it's, yeah, for you, that just becomes globally scalable. And, you know, yeah. I would assume the whole idea is it becomes much more profitable because you just, you don't have to scale up a human work, workforce and therefore you're not running, you know, hundreds and hundreds of headcount and payroll and all the other headaches that come with that. Yeah. So that's, that's a really good point. It, it's, we could be selling as many machines in, in a week as we place in Australia in, in a couple of years. We still will have some customer service. Um, basically, we've got a team that follow the sun, as it were. So when we've got people in, you know, in the North and South America, Asia, Europe, we've got all these different time zones. So we do have a customer service team that follows the sun and looks after our customers in different markets from a sort of hardware, software, backend type of support. There's a lot of, it's not just doing the licensing of the software, there's a lot of build stuff that we do as well. So we're sort of phase two now. We've done a basic first phase with one of our customers. We're now at phase two in terms of looking at different third-party integrations for them. So there's a more... They're just straight out licensing and updates. There's actually some extra sort of bits and pieces that come with it as well. And it's so much, so much more simpler, I think, running that where, yeah, to be blunt, you don't have to deal with the end consumer. Because <laughs> one of the reasons I got off Facebook is just sick of you know, people. <laughs> and some of, the, some of the mad things that come out of people's mouths, and I'm sure there's been plenty of mad things coming out of my mouth that's pissed off someone in the past. But, yeah, just not having to deal with people. B2B is a much more effective way of doing it, much easier. Uh, and for us mm-hmm. to be able to scale, you know, we it's just it's awesome numbers around a dollar into the global business would give a 10 times the return than a dollar into the Australian business. But what the Australian business has really done for us, importantly, has is a really big unfair advantage that we've got having done the stuff in Australia versus another machine manufacturer that may come up and say, oh, we're going to copy what Water 3 do. We've tested at scale. So we've tested these things in a network of 300 plus machines across they're outside surf clubs, they're in car parks, they're in backpackers, they're on the G-Link, they're 
in all these weird and wonderful places and we've belted the crap out of them for you know 18 months almost two years now then really smash them around to to see what breaks and then really put that back into the design work now so our original bunch of machines that we made with a different factory they're all gone they were like gen one we learned a heck of a lot from them but they were yeah the, the manufacturer was pretty horrible and just all sorts of bad stuff happened yeah and so we, we changed manufacturers and they might be because we use now much much better but they take really good feedback loops and from the service team in australia and learn a lot so that's been really cool having the aussie business there it's almost like a, a giant r&d test site and when we talk to you know the coaches and the pepsis of this world and I say, oh, how do we know it's going to work? We just go, there's Australia, there's 300 machines, go and kick one. Um, oh, okay, right. no worries, you've proven it. You've proven your point. So it's been, it's been really good. Yeah, there'll be people listening to the podcast who have got you know ambitions to to B2B business, you know, they, they need distribution. So they'll, I've got a great idea and I just need a, a retail, you know, Kmart or a Woolies or a Bunnings to stock it and then it'll take off. So, you know, if I paraphrase what you were saying there in the story, it sounds to me like you're saying, look, you might be able to go to Bunnings and get them to stock it and it might fly off the shelves and happy days to you, but that's a hard slog. If you go out and actually prove that people will use it, it stands up, they like it. If you can prove it yourself first, you've got a much better chance of turning around to a big distributor and actually saying to them, well, not only do I want you to take it, but here's the pudding. I've done it myself. We know it works. Yeah. Is that, yeah, because I would imagine it's, it is a real risk that people sort of become an inventor and sort of say, look, I've invented something. Now I just need someone to sell it for me. And I guess what your story is telling me is, well, get out there and prove that people will actually buy it. People will use it. Okay, maybe you, you haven't done it to the kind of scale that a you know a Walmart or someone could take you to, but- if you've proven it yourself, you remove the risk for them. And if you remove the risk for them, they're more likely to do it. And I'm guessing the other upside too is, you know, it puts you in a stronger negotiating position, right? Because you've got some idea how profitable it could be. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. It's about de-risking the decision for the person that you're dealing with. And if you've got traction, it, again, absolutely bang on the money, it, it gives you a bit of negotiating position. You know, we've had uh, shoppers ever say, oh, we want to charge you this much per month. We're just laughing and say, we don't even pay that pack fare, which is way better than your why would we pay twice what they're paying or what they're charging us for you? And they're like, oh, okay, no worries, here you go. You get a much cheaper price. So de-risking the decision is, is the absolute key there because whether they're a buyer at Bunnings or wherever, a distribution, you know, you've got a crap piece of intellectual property and you want to get a consultant coming to, to sell it for you. You need to de-risk their, their decision to do business with you and show you how capable and competent you are. You know, things like we would, we would put into our, our pitches about our service levels. So here's what happens if something goes wrong. Here's our escalation procedure, and here's the number you can call. Here's another number if it's a catastrophic incident or something like that. And that just understanding what the motivators are and the risks are for, you know, I guess the, the buyer or the person trying to do business with. We work from, I always say, work from the customer backwards. So figure out what is, what are their hot points, and what are their pain points, and what are their fear points, and then design everything around that. I get asked all the time, like I'm constantly approached by people who've got a really cool product or service, or it could be really cool, and they've got, you know, they're great inventors or technicians, whatever you call them, but they're, um, yeah, they're really struggling with how do I leverage what I've got or how do I scale this into market? And the amount of people I've met that are just going, oh, I've invented a really cool product, so I'm going to start my own sales company and sell this all on, online. And I've just gone, why would you do that? Find someone to do it for you. Get someone who's already already selling. So there's a, um, a group that approached me, well, I must have been last year, and said, oh, we're, we're thinking about hiring a sales force to get our product into pharmacies. So why would you do that? 
you're, you've got one product. I know people go into pharmacies with a book an inch thick, and that's their catalog. If they don't own any of those products, they're just a distributor for it. There's you know, a list for a bunch of brands that don't even do their own sales in Australia, but they're everywhere. And they kind of look at me like a lighted point off. Like, oh, why didn't I think of that? I think because you, because people are just so busy making their product, it's you know it comes naturally to people like us because that's what we do. But um, there's a lot of people out there that you know they're going to look at real traditional ways. Oh, I'm going to hire a sales force and I'm going to do this. So, hey, stick to your name. Don't do it. Yeah. So the point there is picking that inflection though, right? So it's about servicing enough customers so you get a sense, you iron out the kinks, you find the bugs, you get stuff going. But before you get to the stage where you try to put 40 salespeople into little hatchbacks driving around the country, that's when you move to your distribution and partner strategy. Have I read that correctly? Yeah. You've got you to get some wins to understand the market as well. Because if you just go and go, oh, here's a new widget, Bunnings, you should take this. Bunnings go, okay, well, how many people actually use it? Oh, I haven't sold any yet. They're never going to buy it off you. But if you can turn around and say, oh, I, I, spent, I spent 40 bucks on a little campaign on Instagram and I sold 300 of the things. Oh, really? Yeah. And this is the sort of margins you can get. So they look at it and go, I can put this in the shelf space and I need a return of $1,000 a square meter per week of retail margin you know, on the shelves. Is your product going to do that for me? And this is where a lot of people go, oh, I didn't realize that that's how they measure it. So if they, they have a limited amount of shelf space, they need a, a yield from it. That's what they look at. They couldn't care less that your thing is going to save orangutans in Borneo. That's nice, but they're ruthless. They, mm. We found the same thing. We say, oh, this is going to remove this many plastic bottles. It's going to do this. Some of them are like, awesome. That's what we want. Tell us how to expand that messaging out. And that was lovely. But then a lot of them are just like, oh, that's nice, but I don't care. Tell me how much money you're going to pay me <laughs> to have your machine in there. I mean, that, yeah, there's a lot, of, yeah, a lot of ancillary things that sort of help get someone over the line, but yeah. When it comes to sort of talking tic tacs, it's like, yeah, how much money am I going to get from it? Then you can spin the stuff like, oh, people might come into your, and your customer might come into your shopping center because this is where they can get water. Yeah, it's great. We're not buying it that much, but yeah, but you'll make 400 bucks a week from it. Oh, okay, great. Well, we'll do that. So, yeah. Or whatever the number happens to be. Yeah, some of your stuff's really interesting, especially when it came to retail. Some of them were really keen to show that they're a member of the community and supporting local businesses. But there were some real weird reasons why people were keen on taking it. And one of them was um, they wanted to keep mum and the kids in the shopping centre for longer. So if mum turns up with a pram and a couple of bottles and the kids are like thirsty and smash it, she's not going to go fill them up from the tap in the bathroom. She's not going to go spend $9 on water. She's going to leave. So she's not going to spend any more money in the shopping centre that day or that week. Yeah. Like, Once she's gone, she's gone. She ain't coming back. And the other thing was also looking after staff as well. So well, I remember when we first put the machine in, I was looking at some of the reports. What? Who on earth is using that machine at 2 a.m.? And it turned out some of our best customers are the security guards and the cleaners because they can't get water anywhere. Nothing's open at 2 a.m. when they're walking around. Isn't it funny how just you often don't know what your market's going to be or the, all the different use cases. You can't possibly think of all the different use cases for your product and your service until you're actually in there and doing it. And then you go, ah, oh, it turns out my customers might be. And, and I hear that story all the time with people with positioning. They kind of go out looking for someone. I mean, yours is only a, a minor side. You know, security guards is a small part of it. But for some companies, they, they, they pitch a whole business and they think they're selling to someone and they discover it's a whole different audience that's buying into it. And, you know, one of the classic ones I had is, 
looking at things like solar panels and, and when they sort of started coming out, everyone assumed like they were pitching to people who cared about the environment and, and it was sort of like greenies and it was, and you go, no, it was the complete opposite in the political spectrum. It was people who voted conservative who more just wanted to make money. They were like, oh, I'll just invest in panels and I'll, you know, that would, and it was just your idea of who the customer is and who it actually ends up being off would be completely different. Yeah, it's like, um, I think the story is pretty true, but Fisher and Pipel, when they did their distraws, they identified a, a key user group. It was actually Jewish housewives in New York. Right. Because what, what was so you got two di- distraws, and that makes it kosher because you can wash you know, your eggs and milk and your animal products in one and one on the other. So a lot of Jewish kitchens will have two dishwashers or, or even two kitchens. So that way it's a kosher kitchen. Um, so all of a sudden they had this, this key user group of Jewish housewives in New York, and the thing went crazy. They thought it would go well in New York because loads of space, so it's almost like a half-size you know, um, dishwasher, but they were selling them in doubles, and they couldn't work out why until they started getting some analysis done. Yeah, crazy. And then they, you know, they're all like, uh, t- t- telling everyone about it. So sales to Jewish housewives went through the roof in New York. Do you know, I'll, I'll just I'll add in my dishwasher story, which was when somebody realised that dishwashing was what we called it, but dish hiding is what people actually purchased it for. <laughs> so you take your dishes, you hide them in the dishwasher so that they're not there and they're not seen. And that, that idea, because you, you could actually wash it by hand, but we all say the same thing, hide the dishes over the course of the day so the sink doesn't look messy. So, yeah, yeah. so we're, 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 before we get into selling white goods and things, I'll just give you one last question. And that's a bit of a, a retrospective one for you. If you could go back to a particular point in time and give yourself some advice when you're going through this journey, when would you go back to and what would you tell yourself? Oh, I'll probably go back to eight years ago Yep. and say to myself, it's going to take you three years to figure out how to fund it. Go do something else to make some money. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> yeah. we spent so many, so many, three years, you know, pitching for capital and, and eight years ago, there wasn't really a lot of money around back in 2011, 2012. There wasn't a lot of money around for, you know, a fairly capital, was a fairly capital to the startup. We were looking sort of five, six million dollars to get started. And yeah, I, I could I'll sit here and tell you some, some crazy stories around con artists and a murder and all sorts of stuff. But, you know, so I look back and just go, what the heck was all this about? But it was, you know, each week it was kind of like, yeah, you know, someone's keen to do a deal. And then, you know, you do a bit more DD and find out they're, you know, they're not even using the real name and they're completely dodgy. and all sorts of stuff. So it's back to the drawing board with, with cap raising. And um, yeah, probably three years, almost three years, you know, betting it hits against brick walls, just going, everyone loves it, but no one wants to fund it. What the hell's going on? So I probably, I probably would have gone and done a couple of other projects if I'd known eight years ago it was going to take three years for us to get started. I would have, we actually did get stuck into another business, um, which made us enough money to get started in the end, but I would have probably done some of that stuff a bit sooner. That would, that would be it. You know, they say hindsight's twenty twenty. There's probably a few other things that are fairly personal to me that I'd probably change. But the reality is we're in a really good position. We don't have any competition. We've got trials going on with you know some of the biggest water companies in the world uh, trialling our, our equipment. Some of them are just rolling it out like in Hong Kong. So the, the business is in a really, really good uh, position right now for you know crazy, crazy growth this year. It'll be The business will be exciting to watch, I think, this year to see where it gets to. Yeah, well, fantastic! Congratulations too. I think it's um, it is a success story, and you, you've you've done amazingly well. And you know, you can sort of I've kind of seen you and and been around the same space, and even raised money at about the same kind of time as you. So we've probably got all sorts of war stories we can sell, tell each other over a pint one day. But if people want to connect with you or follow Water Three, what are the best digital locations to find you or the company online? 
So the company, you can find at water3.com or Instagram or Facebook. Mm-hmm. And myself, find me on LinkedIn. Um, okay. Yeah, I should actually go through and update that profile of mine. <laughs> I'm looking at it now. It looks like you. you know? Oh, yeah, it's, it's me. The photo's only probably about a year old, but um, certainly I need to update some information on there. Yeah, because I, I don't think I've actually put anything on there about the pivot of the business and where we go to now. So probably need to update that somewhat. Uh, so, yeah, LinkedIn. Well, LinkedIn I don't have Twitter, I don't have Facebook, I've got Instagram, but all you're going to find is photos of my old dog, photos of scenery. That's about it. There's nothing really water three based on, on my uh, Instagram. I mean, it's just, but the company's got Instagram yeah, and Facebook and they're pretty active on them. Yeah, oh, same as me. I, there's there's a point where you there's just too many social channels and you just got to pick a couple and go, that's where I'm going to put my effort. Whatever effort, effort it happens to be, that's my effort. And you, you start trying to add Instagram and then TikTok and whatnot. You just, you know, so my only, you know, I need an appreciation for TikTok, but I think it's more just in preparation for my kids getting old enough and wanting to be on it. So I think it's more of a parental guidance and a professional guidance at the moment. Yeah, my six-year-old knows all about it and he doesn't have it, but he knows all about it and has been telling me all about it. Yeah, yeah six-year-olds know everything about everything I've discovered. I've got a seven-year-old, so he knows even more than a six-year-old. Yeah, um, yeah. Most of us, most of it's made up. But anyway, look, Damien, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Congratulations on success so far. And I look forward to watching the uh, continued global expansion of Water 3. Thanks for having me on, Jared. Appreciate it, Tom. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I hope we were able to provide you with some great marketing ideas that will really help your business. As always, if you'd like to support me and the show, just jump onto iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast and rate and review. Those reviews really make a difference and help me reach a broader audience. If you'd like to connect, the best way to find me, of course, is on LinkedIn, following me on social media, or just connecting. And if you've got ideas for future episodes or you're a marketer and you would like to appear in a future episode, just hit me up on LinkedIn as well. I'd be happy to have a chat. Thanks a lot. And I look forward to speaking with you next week.